open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 31 and 32 this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to be speaking to you this morning on a message that I've entitled, God's Priority for Marriage. Now, for some of you, that may, you may think, well, that really doesn't apply to me, and you may just kind of tune out. Um, but I want to encourage you to listen to what God's Word has to say this morning. Because while it may not apply to you in your current situation, you never know when the Lord may bring somebody into your life who He seeks for you to counsel, that you might give them biblical direction, biblical guidance. And sometimes, when I think it's difficult when we come and, and we listen to a, a sermon, listen to God's Word being preached, we we tend to, and really ought to tend to, think about how does this apply to me? And we should, we should have that kind of mentality. How does this apply to me? We want to apply God's Word. But as disciples of Christ, we are called to be disciple makers also, which means that every part of God's Word is going to apply to us, either specifically in some area in our life, or in some way that we might be able to guide somebody else into God's truth. And so, It is always appropriate to hear the Word of God proclaimed in order that we might apply it and use it to grow in our faith and our understanding of who God is and His desires for us, but also as um, to grow as disciple makers in trying to counsel others. Now, Jesus has been teaching last week, um, Jesus had spoke on the, the law is not commit, the command to not commit adultery. Prior to that, we spoke about the law um, to not commit murder. And what Jesus is doing in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is he's continuing to expose our hearts to the law of God and to the tendency and the reality that we have as, as, human, as humans to take God's law and to seek to reinterpret it to our own designs and our own purposes. And what Jesus is doing throughout this section in the Sermon on the Mount is is He is exposing the intents of our heart and helping us to understand what God's law is really intended to do, which is to draw us to God, to make us aware of the deceptions in our heart, and to lead us to a place of repentance and a place of dependence on the Lord God as we recognize our own insufficiency and God's ultimate sufficiency. So Jesus is seeking to reveal to us the true intent of God's law as opposed to a self-centered interpretation of God's law that serves self. And while last week I said we started, or Jesus was speaking on the commandment that you shall not commit adultery, and while he has spoken on that specifically and that the matter of adultery is one of the heart, this next section uh, relates again to an Old Testament teaching, but it continues on this same theme of adultery. I want you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word as we read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Heavenly Father, in these two short verses, we are confronted, Lord, with a command from You, a direction from You that weighs heavy in many of our lives, and as we either have experienced or know those close to us who have experienced the tragedy of divorce. And Father, we seek to understand what Your Word teaches us here, understanding that Your desire is not to weigh us down with a burden of sin that cannot be overcome, but to lead us to a place of utter dependence on You where our sins are washed away and where we are made new creatures through Jesus Christ. So, Father, direct our hearts, our minds. Speak to us this morning and help us, Lord, to understand and apply Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now, it would seem with Jesus' emphasis and ongoing discussion on adultery that it was something that apparently... The, the issue of divorce, in specifically as we're looking at this passage, was something that was a fairly common practice in his day. Now, that may seem a little bit strange to us because we come from a culture which, you know, a hundred years ago, the divorce rate in our country was less than 5%. And now it's somewhere around the 40% mark, which is down from where it was 10 years ago, where it was in and around 50%. Now, there's a lot of sociological reasons that they give for the increase and decrease and fluctuations in divorce rates in our culture, but most of those completely ignore the, the one thing that I think that we need to understand is that the acceptance of divorce in a culture is directly related to its abandonment of God's Word. Because God, in His Word, has clearly spoken of His desire for the sanctity of marriage. God, in His Word, has clearly told us that He hates divorce. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, unfortunately, that, that, that word... That word divorce, it is something that is really very common in our day and age. It's, it's something that has been experienced by so many people, and it, is, and it is so destructive to lives. It is so harmful to the, to the people that it affects. Not to say that there aren't some times when it is appropriate and when it is even necessary, because those times happen as well. And we need to understand what God's Word has to say about that too. But we need to recognize that ultimately the problem that Jesus was experiencing in His culture was that people had drifted from the sufficiency of God's Word and the teaching of God's Word the way that God intended it and it embraced an understanding of Scripture that helped to fit their own desires. And we see the same thing happening in our own 
culture. People want to reinterpret Scripture either to justify their own sin or to condemn the sins of others. And we cannot just pick and choose from the Word of God the things that we want to believe and the things that we want to apply and the things that, that we, and we can't seek to reinterpret what's there to fit our own desires. We need to submit ourselves to what God's Word actually says and allow His Spirit to lead us into truth. That is God's desire. That is Jesus' desire as He speaks to us of God's priority for marriage. Whereas we never see the word marriage used in here. We speak, we, he uses the words for divorce and he uses the words for adultery. But what he's doing is by giving us a negative example, he's demonstrating to us the high priority that God has placed on marriage and the purposes for which he has designed it. You see, God designed marriage to reflect his love for his people. In Ephesians 5.25, we see this most clearly. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is, marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel. It's meant to be a, a picture for the world to see where unconditional love is expressed in the union of a man and a woman in matrimony. The same way that Christ has brought us into union with himself, that Christ has, the church is his bride and they have come together and he demonstrates unconditional sacrificial love for her, so also earthly marriage is meant to demonstrate that same selflessness as man and woman come together to love one another despite circumstances, to honor a covenant, to honor the Word of God in the design that He has given. Now the thing about, when we talk about God's design and, and our ability to fulfill God's design, I think all of us recognize pretty quickly and pretty easily how unable we are to fulfill God's design. We are people affected and impacted by sin. We are marred by sin. And so our attempts to fulfill God's design fall woefully short of what God would have us to do. And that's true in, in every area of life. And even in marriage, it's also something which we understand, even in understanding what God desires for us in the bonds of marriage and in the picture of marriage, we recognize that we often fall short of what that is supposed to be and what that's supposed to look like. We fall short of God's standard. But yet, even in the midst of our brokenness, even when we do fall short, it is all the more an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ through forgiveness and grace and understanding so that through that relationship, there might be reconciliation and restoration. And this is why God places such a high priority in marriage and why he uses such strong language here as Jesus speaks in reference to divorce. I want to share with you this morning two primary truths from this text as Jesus is speaking as he reveals God's priority for marriage. First, I want you to see the problem of misunderstanding God's word and then we're going to look at the protection that marriage provides against adultery. 
But first, let's talk about the problem of misunderstanding. In verse 31, Jesus begins with that familiar phrase, it was said. As we've been looking at this section of, of the Sermon on the Mount, we know that Jesus started it off by saying it was said by those, or it was taught by those, by the ancients, these things. And so when he says it was said, he's referencing those things which have been taught in relation to God's Word. And what is it that has been taught? He says, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now this is the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. This is what had been passed down and was the popular command of Jesus' day in relation to divorce. The, the issue, though, is as Jesus has already kind of inferred by the it was said, is this is a misunderstanding of what God's Word actually teaches. God never gave a command for divorce. God never said that. So what has been said and what has been taught is a reinterpretation of Scripture in order to fit the purposes and the desires of the people. Excuse me. <clears throat> and so this misunderstanding has been prevalent in Jesus' day. And this is not the only time that Jesus is confronted with this misunderstanding. In fact, later on in Matthew chapter 19, and, and I'm going to turn there just for a moment, because I want to share with you an encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees there in Matthew 19 regarding this same issue of, of divorce. And there in chapter 19, it says, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And so we see Jesus giving really the same argument again just more in depth as he exposes the misunderstanding of the people. They had taken the words from Deuteronomy chapter 24 and they had in inferred into them what they wanted to hear out of an elevation of self-interest. And that is the problem with misunderstanding God's Word is that we often misunderstand God's Word in an in seeking to elevate our own self-interest. We have a desire for what we want God's Word to say. We, have, we embrace a particular belief of what we think is right, and then we go and we search the Scriptures to try and fit our belief. But when you do that, you've gotten it backwards. You can't decide what you believe and then try to find the Scriptures that support it. 
You need to submit yourself to the teaching of God's word and let God's word inform your belief. To do it the other way is to diminish God's word and to elevate yourself above God's word. And so, but this is the common misinterpretation and misunderstanding when it comes to God's word. And this is what Jesus is dealing with in this context as he's speaking to the people and trying to help them to understand where they've gotten this idea wrong. In fact, if we, if we look back at Deuteronomy chapter 24, this is the first place in Scripture where divorce is mentioned. And in Deuteronomy 24, it says this. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance." Now, I hope you noticed as I read through that passage that nowhere in there did God command that there be a divorce. He is simply describing the reality that if these things happen and if the divorce occurs, then you need to understand that divorce can lead to furthering sin if if you don't understand the union that God originally intended. The, The command, or the The instruction there is not given as permission as much as it is a description to help protect the sanctity of marriage, to help people to understand that where marriages dissolve, sin abounds. And so sin is a breeding ground, or rather divorce creates a breeding ground for sin. Again, not that it is always that way, but in many situations where self-interest is the primary concern and the primary goal, it creates a difficulty where, excuse me, it creates a difficulty in undermining God's design for marriage. And so Jesus is helping us to see in this passage how divorce can compound sin and the need to protect the purity of the marriage covenant. In fact, the the writing of the certificate of divorce to give to the woman and sending her away was, in according to Jewish law and, and according to the thought of the time, the reason for the certificate was so that the woman would have proof that she had been sent away and was free to remarry. That was the, the, the legal side of what was going on. So that if, if she was to go and, and to get into another relationship, that she would not be guilty under the law of committing adultery because she was, in fact, she had been divorced and she had that legal document that said the f- former marriage had been dissolved. So that was the, the purpose in the certificate. Okay? So the certificate dissolved the marriage and freed them to remarry in the legal sense, in the understanding of the people. That was how they did it. But Jesus says, listen, when you violate God's command, you're already committing adultery. It's a matter of the heart. It's not just a physical, we're going to talk about this more in just a minute, because it's not just the physical act of adultery that Jesus has in mind, it's the spiritual 
act of adultery that Jesus is focusing on as he tries to help us to understand the purpose for which marriage was given. You know, we need to understand when we, when we come to Scripture and when, we, and when we read things in it, that it is, it is meant to conform our hearts and our minds. It's meant to change us. It's meant to direct us. Again, not, not that we make up our own ways and then try to find Scriptures to support it, but that we submit ourselves and follow it. But in stuttering, in stuttering, that's what I'm doing right this minute, in stuttering, in studying Scripture, we need to learn to differentiate between the things in Scripture which are descriptive and those things in Scripture which are prescriptive. That is, there are some things that happen in Scripture that are meant just to describe a certain situation, and then there are other things in Scripture that are meant to be given to us to actually give us instruction, right? I mean, when you read about what happened after Judas... Judas uh, betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. What? He felt guilty over what he had done, right? And we read about how Judas went and hung himself, right? That is not a description of how we are to deal with our guilt, okay? That is a description of what Judas did. It's not, a, it's not a prescription for what we should do. And we see the same thing throughout the book of Acts as, as God has given us a record of the spreading of the gospel and the expansion of the church into the Gentile nations and the Holy Spirit's work in a unique time in history as he's building his church before the time that Scripture was completed. And a lot of what we see in the book of Acts is given to us as a description of how the Spirit was working in uniting the church from a Jewish church to a Gentile church and is not meant to give us a, an expectation of how the Spirit is going to continue to work in the church today once the Scriptures were completed. And if you study those texts and you study church history, you begin to recognize that there is a difference in the way that the Lord was working then than the way that He worked even very shortly as, or very shortly afterward as the Scriptures were being written and being completed. And so there's things in Scripture that are given to us as descriptions of how God was working in a specific way or how people were behaving in a certain way and are not necessarily meant to be instructive for what we are to do. And we have to be discerning in that. And the way to be discerning in that, again, is we submit ourselves to the Word of God. We don't impose ourselves on the Word of God. Common misunderstandings usually come from elevating self-interest and result in a diminishing of God's design. This misunderstanding that the, that the people of Jesus' day had was, in effect, minimizing God's priority on marriage. As we saw from the description in Matthew 19, as Jesus refers back to Genesis 1, that marriage was to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime. That is God's design. That is His purpose. That is His desire. And yet, we understand that circumstances arise in life, that sometimes things that we don't have from just from the original design of God's plan, we don't always have instruction on how to move forward. The good thing is, is that God, a lot of times, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you recognize how He does this. He gives a command in one place, and then as circumstances happen and the people go, okay, we know you told us this, but now this has happened and we don't understand what we're supposed to do. Well, God continues to teach and to instruct and to help to understand. Just as an example, given the, God's original design for marriage. Well, what happens if someone's married 
and one of the spouses dies, right? That doesn't really fit into that original design, which we, which we hear about, right? I mean, that doesn't fit. What ha- are they, can they remarry? Should they stay single? Are they supposed to do this? What are they supposed to do? How does this fit in? I don't understand because it doesn't fit the original design. Well, Scripture speaks to that for us. And it helps us to understand because God doesn't want to just leave us in a vacuum where we don't know what to do. So he tells us, he tells us in, in uh, 1 Timothy 5.14, he makes it pretty clear. He says, therefore, I want younger widows to get married. That's what, so if you have a woman who's young and, and her husband dies, he says, I want her to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, it says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So, so Scripture speaks to these things because it wants us to understand God's desire for marriage to be a fulfillment in our life. It is not given to us just as something, it is given to us as something that represents God's love for His people. It is a picture of the gospel, but it is also for our enjoyment. It is also for for our own fulfillment, for our own satisfaction. God gives it to us. It's a gift for us. And so, if we look at marriage only from a perspective of self-fulfillment, we eventually become discontent. And we begin to look for justifications for dissolving the marriage. And it diminishes God's design. But if we look at marriage from a perspective of demonstrating sacrificial and unconditional love as a means of representing Christ, then every difficulty becomes an opportunity. And we find ourselves more concerned with honoring Christ than with having our own way. When we understand correctly God's design for marriage and we pursue it according to His plans and intents, we are better able to endure and to enjoy the beautiful gift that he intended marriage to be. There will be times when a marriage encounters circumstances in which divorce is permissible. Jesus suggests as much in the next verse that we're going to be looking at. And while he gives us an example of that, his primary purpose is not to delineate for us when divorce is acceptable, but to demonstrate to us why marriage is a protection against adultery. Let's look there at verse 32 as Jesus brings correction here. He says, but I say, that is, you've heard it said this way, but I'm going to tell you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, God's command against adultery is meant to elevate the significance of the marriage covenant, to encourage purity of heart. I mean, the original command there, you shall not commit adultery. Why? Because it pollutes the marriage covenant, right? And so, that's, that's the purpose. And he had already condemned that. Not just the act itself, but even the thoughts that lead to it. See, Jesus is concerned about where our hearts are. In all of this, it's not so much to, to try and, and beat people down over things that they have done or things that they've experienced, but to help them realize their need for Him. To help them realize the desperate position that they're in because they've fallen short of God's standard. 
And he continues to magnify the sinful condition of people's hearts and their failure to cherish God's gift of marriage in pursuit of self-fulfillment and self-justification. Jesus is saying that you can't, you shouldn't so easily set marriage aside for your own purposes. For an unjust divorce actually creates a violation of God's command against adultery. But if you, if you protect and pursue marriage according to God's design, you actually provide protection against adultery. You see, both in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense, we see marriage as a protection. Marriage is given to us as a gift. God created us as sexual beings. And He, give, he gave us marriage as the, the bounds in which that expression can be found. He created us for intimate relationship. So that in marriage, two can become one flesh. But when we expand beyond the bounds of God's design, we diminish the significance of that relationship which God designed to be a special bond between a husband and wife. Proper expression in the marriage helps to preserve the special union that God designed it to be and to prevent a wandering heart. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 5. Because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, marriage is given as a protection against adultery. It's given so that, so that the, the expression and the enjoyment that God intended for us to have can be, can, can be enjoyed and can be fulfilled within the boundaries which God designed. But it is not just a matter of that physical adultery that it protects against, but also spiritual adultery. And this is the point that Jesus is making in this passage. He says here in verse 32, he says, everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. Now, there's two things that immediately jump out from that text. The first is that Jesus provides an exception for divorce, okay? So that's, that's one thing that jumps out. The other thing that ought to jump out to you is the fact that Jesus says when divorce occurs, that in, in the way that he puts it is that the husband who divorces his wife causes his wife to commit adultery. So that the adultery, and he speaks of it not as something that might happen if he divorces her, but something that has happened because of divorce. Why? Because the annulment of a covenant before God is spiritual adultery. So much of the Old Testament deals with the people's hearts as they turned against God, as they forsook the covenant that He had made with them. And the breaking of a covenant is an adulterous act. And that is what Jesus is pointing to in, in this reality. In fact, a lot of what Jesus is dealing with in this section deals with spiritual adultery. We're going to look at that here in, in just a minute again. But I want to look at this exception clause just for a moment because it's, it's interesting to see what Jesus says here 
And, and really, as I've studied this over the last couple of weeks, the Lord has really taught me a lot concerning this. Because I think most often what we hear is, is when, when we read this passage and, what, and the way that we've heard it taught and the way we heard it preached on is that divorce is only acceptable when there is marital unfaithfulness. That is, that adultery has already occurred. And that's the way that we understand this word. But it's interesting because Jesus is using the word adultery all through this passage, and yet when he talks about the reason or the exception in which divorce is permissible, he doesn't use the word adultery. He uses a different word. He uses a word that's translated in the New American Standard as um, unchastity. In some translations, it's, it's uh, immorality. In some translations, it's unfaithfulness. And all of those things, of course, would include adultery, but I believe that Jesus is actually giving us a broader term than what, than what is, he's not just using a, a diverse vocabulary, but he's giving us a broader term to um, indicate what he has intended here. And the reason why I think that is not just because of the word usage, which we're going to talk about in just a second, but because the punishment for adultery in Jesus' day was death not divorce. So it, would, it only makes sense that he's not talking specifically about adultery, but rather all kinds of immoral acts that violate the trust and the special union in a marriage. That's the thing that he's talking about. The word is actually the Greek word porneia. You can imagine where we get some of our words from there. But it's a word that speaks of various kinds of immoral behaviors, unfaithfulness. It's, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be all-out adultery in order to demonstrate unfaithfulness, in order to demonstrate um, an immorality and a violation of the marriage covenant. And so Jesus recognizes that immoral behavior in one of the spouses causes issues of distrust it breaks down the relationship between them. It, 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 help, or it, it creates friction and conflict. And sometimes when trust is destroyed in a relationship, it is extremely difficult to rebuild. I say difficult, not impossible. Because again, Jesus doesn't command divorce in such in instances, but he permits it. And there's a difference there too. Because Jesus' greatest desire, God's greatest desire in marriage is reconciliation and restoration as a picture of his redemption. That is his desire. That is not always possible, but that is his desire. And in fact, I think that the, because of what else Scripture teaches about um, exceptions for divorce, I think that we can understand that Jesus wasn't limiting, limiting it here just to the act of adultery, but to a, to a broader range. Later on, the Apostle Paul will teach that if a, if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants out, that the believer is free to let them leave. Now, he makes clear that a believer should not seek to be separated from an unbeliever, but if the unbeliever wants to go, he says, let him go. Why? Well, an unbeliever is going, to have, is going to be immoral, right? I mean, they're going to have actions and they're going to do things that are, that are immoral and against God, and, and yet he says, he explains throughout that passage, he says, you don't know whether or not you'll be able to win them over 
so you stay with them. But if they want to go, let them go. And, uh, and so I think, I think we see that Scripture is, doesn't intend to give us a list of excuses for where divorce is permissible. What it does do is seek to help us to understand where God stands on marriage and how He holds it up as a priority and how He holds it up in its significance and how He desires for there to be that union and that, um, that active, active works of grace and forgiveness in order to demonstrate His love for His people. You know, if we approach Scripture looking for permissions for things, we're approaching it with the wrong heart. But that's our intent. I mean, we, man, people do that all the time. Is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do that? Is it okay? Listen, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in all that you do. Then you don't have to worry about asking permission for stuff. If it doesn't glorify God, don't do it. I mean, it's, it's not that difficult. We don't need to search the Scripture to find out what I'm able to do and what I'm not able to do. God didn't give us Scripture to give us a bunch of rules that we have to keep. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to help us to recognize the rules are there to help us see where we've fallen short, to help us recognize our need for Him, that we can't get there on our own, that we need God's forgiveness, that we need Christ's cleansing in order that we might be forgiven and we might be made new in Him. It's to point us to our dependence on Him. Not to help us keep our own set of rules. That was the mistake that the Pharisees and the scribes were making. They had come up with their own whole set of rules. Based, they had, okay, here's God's rules. Now here's the rules that we're going to put in place in order that we might keep God's rules. And they made it all about them trying to make themselves acceptable. You cannot get there. We have to recognize God's original design, recognize where we've fallen short, and then repent of our failure and seek God's grace and forgiveness that He might build us up and lead us forward. God, He doesn't intend to leave us in a, in a place of, of perpetual sin. And sometimes, and I know that people struggle with this and, and they have a, a, a difficulty with, with reconciling their experience sometimes with, with what God's Word says. And I know it can be difficult. And if you're struggling and, and you need to talk to somebody about what you've experienced in your life, I want you to know I'm available and I would, be, I would love to sit down with you and I would love to talk to you about what you've dealt with in your life and to help you um, understand where God is on this. But I want, you to, I want you to know that God isn't trying to trap you in a place of perpetual sin that you can't escape from. That is not His desire. But he does want you to recognize just how desperately you need him. Because we're all guilty of committing adultery. Either in our hearts with lustful thoughts or in our spirit for violating God's covenant. Even in this final phrase in verse 32 where he says, and uh, uh, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He's pointing us back to the fact of, of overreaching God's original design. Breaking down the covenants that God has given us. And actually so much of what, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps pointing us, what? Back to God's law. 
this is what God's law says. This is what God's law says. This is what God's law says. This is how you've misinterpreted it. This is how you've misunderstood it. This is its intent to point us to the fact that we have violated God's covenant. Now, marriage is a covenant before God. It is not merely a covenant with God. It is that, and we should never misunderstand that. It is a covenant with God. A lot of times we tend to think of marriage as simply a covenant between a man and a woman. We, can, we think that marriage is just promises made to each other. We have marriage vows. We, you, you make vows to your spouse, and they make vows to you. But those vows, when we disregard our covenants before God, we are guilty of spiritual adultery, and it can lead to physical adultery because the further we get away from God, the more we pursue and fall into sin. Now, as I said, Jesus didn't give these insights in order to oppress people or bring them into a place of perpetual sin. I don't think that's his, in, his intent. Because I've, I've counseled with people in the past, and they say, you know, if it says if a, if a man marries a woman who's been divorced, that, that, that he commits adultery. So is that relationship, therefore, then a perpetual sin? No. I would say probably, and the thing we need to keep in mind is Jesus' instruction here is based on an unjust or an unjust divorce. So this is what he's speaking of. But even in that case, I would say this. The initial act is a sin against God. But once you've entered into that new covenant, and if God convicts your heart and he brings you to a place of repentance and, and he helps you to understand where you've been and what he desires, you are able in that current covenantal relationship to honor God and to move forward. Because God always meets us in, the condition, in our current condition. He doesn't expect us to make everything right from our past. Now, where there are things in the past that we can make right, I think He wants us to try and make right, but He doesn't trap us in perpetual sin because He seeks to cleanse us and to forgive us and to help us to move forward in a way that honors and glorifies Him. Wherever the Lord brings sin to light, it is always meant to help us move forward once we have repented of them, being cleansed by His blood. And we are able to honor Him as we move in a direction that does honor Him in honoring the covenants before us and honoring Him in that covenant. Consider the vows made to a spouse. Recognize them not as merely promises to them, but promises before God and purpose to honor them. The significance of honoring our word is one of the primary themes in Scripture. And it's actually where Jesus is heading with this. I think it's interesting the way Jesus is linking his teachings together. You don't commit adultery. This is a teaching on divorce because you need to honor your word. And then the next, the next section that we're going to be dealing with has to do with honoring your word, honoring your vows. But specifically, he's talking about the marriage vows here. Jesus has, wants us to honor him by honoring the vows that we make in marriage. See, marriage is more than a social construct. 
It's more than a next level of commitment in a relationship. It is a special union between a man and a woman before God in which the two are made one flesh and are meant to live out their lives together. That is his desire and that is his design. So let us reflect on that design and purpose. Let us be honest in our failures, but let us also rejoice in His grace and in His love. I hope we never, as the church and as Christians, I hope we never become as flippant towards divorce as what the world is. Is it sometimes necessary? It can be, unfortunately and tragically. It can be. But it should never be taken lightly. And it should never be something that is easily approached. When it comes to the institution of marriage, let us take to heart the Lord's instruction for our good and for the good of others that we may be able to counsel through His Word. And may the gospel of Jesus Christ inform and direct us in all of our relationships and in the attitude of our hearts towards Him so that He might be glorified in us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, so difficult sometimes, Lord, to embrace what You've so clearly taught because of the hurt that it causes us. But Father, let us not forsake what You've given. And let us not take lightly the strong language which You use in Your Word. But let us embrace, rather, the priority that You have given in marriage in the design for which you've created it, and the wonder for which it's meant to be enjoyed. And Lord, help us to not help us to not be careless in our advice. Help us rather Lord, to submit ourselves to your word in all things. That you might continue to teach us and strengthen us and help us to grow. Lord, we look around the world and we see things in people's lives. We see things on television and in movies. And sometimes we wonder, how can it be wrong? But Father, it's not up to us to dispute the things which you have so clearly taught. It is up to us to submit ourselves to the truth of your word. To be courageous in carrying it out. To recognize that obedience is not easy and it can cost us but it will never cost us as much as it has cost you. 
For you alone have bore the sins of the world on your shoulders, in your flesh, and through your blood. All we have is our life to give to you. So, Father, it is yours. Lead us in your way and help us to honor you with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Want to stand with me?